Well, good morning, everybody. Let's turn together to 3 John. To 3 John. We have a few more weeks here as the Lord desires, however long He wants us to be here. There was a time in my ministry, and when I say my ministry and my service to the church as a pastor, where I pretended a whole lot. I pretended because it was required of me unspokenly to be a certain way, to dress a certain way, to stand a certain way, to speak a certain way. And believe it or not, there have even been times in my life in my younger days where, where older men would take me to the side and say, Son, this is how you should communicate at a podium. This is, this is how you should look. This is how you should sound. And a lot of crafting goes into the work of ministers these days. And it's, it's in every circle. It's in every circle. So much so that if you know the circles and you hear a young pastor, you go, I know who's influencing him. And even if it's not intentional in the context of mentoring, it can be indirect through the context of adoration. Somebody can say, well, look, I like this pastor. They listen to this pastor. They begin to sound and talk and speak like this pastor. It's why in my household, all of our voices are in the lower range. We all have a lower voice versus a higher voice. Even my wife, we speak in a lower tone. I expect that. No, I'm just joking. It's just through, it's just through observation. You better lower your tone. I mean, you know, it's just through observation. It's just through experience. It's through exposure. It's not taught. It's just learned. And some other things that I learned is that pastors should always appear to have everything together. What does it mean? You've got to always be early. You have to always, you know, have your clothes pressed. I still take my clothes to the cleaners. I mean, I still have them pressed. Imagine the budget when I had to wear suits. Why? Because that's what pastors wore. That was their outfit. That was their costume. Batman wears a cape, Spider-Man wears a red web, and pastors wear suits. That's just the way it works. And nothing could be further from the truth. And basically what I found by the time I was in my mid-20s is I was just a copycat in a visual sense and an emotional sense of those people who had groomed me in that way. But yet I was not a copycat of their theology. And it was an extreme dichotomy for me talked to a brother last night about these very things and you know we, we, we've been reminiscing back even in the 80s and thinking about what we believed and what we learned and how we would be excited about certain things look what the bible look what i see in these older men in our lives ago now that's just nonsense son you put that you put that away not let's look together nope i know the best i know the truth this is nonsense son put that away then what do you do you go, well, I guess I'm an idiot. Could be true, but it doesn't mean that you're wrong about what the Bible taught you. And one of the things that, that, that God really worked out of me, not because of maturity or anything else, but because he took me in, my, in his hand, and it's sort of like he smushed me like a Play-Doh frog. And he let the juices of my soul run out on the ground, and he dropped me. He didn't drop me on the ground, he just dropped me to his other hand so that he might mold me some more, you see. I thought it was the ground. And emotionally, for years, I never shared the truth of what I struggled with. I never shared and opened myself up to, to, be, uh, to be sincere and to be true and honest about the fact that I was scared or angry or fearful. Because in the small times that I ever did, I say, I'm really having a hard time. Well, maybe you're just not cut out for the work of God. That was the advice I'd be given. Well, I'm worried about something. Well, you just have no faith. Maybe you shouldn't be a pastor. And I'm thinking, my goodness. And I've told the story of my childhood where the pastor that I remember, well, I used to think he sort of like stayed up in heaven or somewhere close to the celestial cities and sort of floated down into the pulpit on Sundays and then poofed back out later. That's how we saw him. Not only was he very tall and very high above the congregation but his pulpit was very wide and bold and his voice was very very pronounced God I mean when God has five syllables you know that's some powerful authority right there so men of God pastors shepherds could not be human in my eyes that's the way I saw it if you're depressed then you're in sin and you cannot serve 
If you're sad, then you have no faith and you cannot serve. If people see any sin in your life whatsoever, so what do you do? You lie. You lie. You lie indirectly. We're taught to lie. You know what it's called? Acting. You know what the Greek word for acting is? Hypocrite. But yet there is a sensitivity there. We can't be really honest. I can't make this my confession podium and tell you everything that goes on in this weird brain of mine and every struggle that I have because if I did that, it would wear on the conscience of you who look to me as someone who should be mature and should be maturing. So there is a sense in which there is wisdom. But I'll tell you this, beloved. If my candor rustles your jimmies or flusters you or ruffles your feathers or aggravates you in any sense because you think that a man called of God is not a human being, I hate to tell you, you are in for a surprise. And Grace Truth Church may not be your spiritual family because the elder brothers of this fellowship are going to be as sincere and as genuine as we should be. And by the Lord's mercy, hopefully and prayerfully, he would cause us to be wise in how we share these things. And I say that because I think if I put on airs, and if I pretend to have everything together, and I'm not honest, then you're going to pretend to have everything together. Then you're going to come into this assembly and say, well, I can't go to church today because my life's in shambles. Great! That's the very time you should be there. If we're a family, then we should be able to come into the living room of our assembly and say, I'm a mess. Why is your hair not done today? Because I don't care anymore. I'm going to pull it all out. Why aren't you dressed? Did you bathe? No, I don't want to bathe anymore. I'm, I'm trying to keep my head above water. I don't care about how I smell. But none of us would dare to enter into this area in that mindset, would we? Nope. We'll be late trying to be nice looking. I'm not saying that that's, that's just a social thing. Beloved, in the true spiritual sense, we're a family. And if someone is offended by your lack of care or concern about your physical well-being or the lack of the fact that you have, don't have everything together, let them be the weaker. Let them be the unspiritual. Let them be the infant. That's what the Bible teaches, right? That's what's wrong with the gospel in America. Is that even so many people who have the gospel right, they impose such legalistic ideologies upon the assembly that the assembly has become this posh pomp and circumstance. We're not going to be like that. We're going to be an intimate family. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, my heart is burdened. And I stay on the edge of turmoil these days. 2020 did a number on me. It was like 20 good years of everything that you know, everything that you've always done, and I'm a routine guy. I don't, you should have seen me trying to buy shoes. I wish I should just bought 10 pairs of the same set of shoes so for 10 years I could not change shoes. I don't like to change stuff. I don't like, cha- I don't like to think in the morning, what am I going to wear? I don't care. I just want it. I, I wish I did have a uniform, you know? When are we going to get the silver suits and the silver caps? When are we going to get those things and the sun shields? Look like David Bowie. I mean, you know, when are we going to get there? It would be easy for me. I don't like choices. I don't want to go, I want to, go to the restaurant that serves food. Yeah, I want food. What kind of food? The food that's on the menu today. There it is. That's what I like. So I don't, I don't like change. And 2020 was a day of change. It was a day of difference. Because when there is change, then my brain goes into overload, processing change, processing hypothetical things. That's why I don't like hypothetical questions. Not because I think that they run a fool's errand. Moreover, that it's selfish. I don't want to stay up all night then implicating the possibilities of what could happen if this were true. I'm sorry. I'm crazy. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm clinical. There's nothing you can do about it. But it's who I am. And so God in his infinite mercy gave us 2020. And all of the trash that came along with it. And everything that I knew about shepherding people. And that I had locked. It wasn't in my hand to look at and lose it. It wasn't on the shelf. I mean it was locked away. Locked box. It was locked away y'all. <laughs> You're getting all my comical references now. It was locked away. 
And it was unchangeable. And then it changed. <laughs> you see? You ever opened up a silverware drawer and there's nothing there but the handles of silverware? There's no fork heads or spoon heads or blades? No, me either. That's what 2020 was for me. Like, I got all the... Is this a fork? Is this a spoon? I don't know. It's just a handle. All I had was handles. I was walking around with tools, handles, and no tools on the ends. Screwdriver, hammer? Who knows? It's just a handle. And then I read First John, I read Second John, I read Third John, and then I'm overcome with, oh no, how am I going to apply this to the body who's not here? <laughs> you know? What do we do? We're going to paint the wall? Where's the wall? We don't have it yet. Just start painting it. We're going to wash the floors? What floors? We don't have a floor. Just start washing it. That's the nonsense. And so when we see the things that come out of these instructions, when we see these things, understand this is not an academic pursuit of just saying, okay, this is what it says, and I'm going to tell you what it says. You can get what it says at home by yourself. But what does it mean? And what does it mean in its own context? What does it mean in the gospel? What does it mean in the body of Christ? What does it mean for us to live it out? You're here to learn to live out the faith. And John has already done in his first two letters, he's made clear the gospel. His gospel is so perfectly clear. It is, it is just, I don't have to go on. You know how I feel about John and his writing and specifically the gospel of John. And so we know the gospel, we know the truth, we understand that we love in truth the teaching of our Lord. We do not embrace those who diverge away from, or divert away from the truth. We correct them, we engage with them, we desire reconciliation. And I want you to understand that, beloved. No matter what it is in life, whether it be ministry application whether it be study, whether it be work, whether it be cleaning or painting, there is always the idea of reconciling something. Finances, reconcile. We don't just spend and hope it comes out on the wash. And we start getting a lot of uh, or gift cards from the bank. Well, this must be gift cards. Let me throw them. No, they're notices. <laughs> you know? We reconcile. We reconcile the truth that the scripture teaches us with the brain that's in our head and the thoughts that go on in our mind. We reconcile. We reconcile and we judge and guard them by what the scripture teaches. Then we reconcile how we study the Bible and how we read and how we interpret. We reconcile that with what the Bible actually says in its simplicity. We reconcile when we hear something different from a brother or sister in the body. And we say, well, that's not right. We reconcile in our own mind. Then we justify what we know by the scripture. Then we engage for reconciliation to bring the conversation to the point where we're having a conversation about the differences. It's long-suffering. It's not immediate. Beloved, our philosophies and the way we process truth is set in us from the day we are born. And it begins to grow and ebb and flow and change and develop. And by the time we're adults, the way we process information is locked up. It's locked up. And what we often have is just a whole box full of handles and no tools. And when someone else comes along and says, well, I hear what you're saying, but what does it say? I hear what you're thinking, but what about this? I understand what you're trying to communicate, but the Bible teaches this. It's as if... 2020 starts all over again. It's as if something we've never experienced all of a sudden comes along and we don't know how to, we don't know what to call it, we don't know how to feed it, we don't know how to take care of it, we don't know where we should keep it. We don't know if we should send it on to our neighbor's house or get rid of it. What do we do? Is it going to kill us or is it going to love us? I mean, it's like an animal that comes up on the porch. We don't even know what it is. I don't know. I have friends that live in Australia and they send me pictures of these crazy things. They send me pictures of spiders the size of this podium top and stuff. And I'm going, don't send me that. Night. That's the things nightmares are made of. There's only one answer to that. Nuclear bombs. It's an island. It won't take much. I mean, it's a joke. You know, let's get everybody off. Let's all take a vacation and bomb the spiders. There we go. We'll get back over there. But knowing my luck, mutated versions would emerge. From the ridiculous now to the sublime. John writes this letter 
And I believe John is going through in his heart and mind a lot of what I go through as an elder. A lot of what Jesse and Dave go through. A lot of what other elder brothers across the world go through every week is that as they labor thinking, okay, you know, it's, it's not hard to get to the meaning of the text. It's hard to communicate the text and trust in the Lord. I'm going to say that again. It's not hard to get to the meaning of the text. It's hard to communicate the text and trust in the Lord. It's hard to teach and let the results be God's. God's results. Because as a father, I know how to whip folks. As a, as a, as a leader, in the sense of I'm leading others, I know how to guide folks harshly. It's easy. And get that shovel and stop standing around and go dig. Don't throw that brick like that. You call that a line? <laughs> I mean, you know, no, it's not. And even in our work, we have to guide and lead as God has called us to. But in the church, we have to guide and lead ever so patiently. And it's hard for me to trust the Lord when I want the results today. You see, I know he will bring them, but I want them today. It's like Burger King and McDonald's. When they tell you to go pull up to number two, you know why they said not number one? Because somebody else is already in it. You know you're in trouble. Fast food, huh? And we literally waited like 16 minutes yesterday for a box of cookies. You're microwaving these things anyway, folks. Come on. I mean, I'm complaining about this cookie thing. 17 minutes. I mean, I drove up to get a cookie, not wait. I didn't need a vacation. I didn't need a break. I don't want to waste gas. And we think that the Lord's going to work like that. We expect him to work that way. Pastor, elder, brothers, we cannot think that God's going to work that way. God's going to work in his timing and only in his timing. And until he works, then we are to be patient. Until he responds, we are to be patient. Until we see reconciliation or until someone says, I will not be reconciled to the truth, we are to be patient. I will not be in the assembly. There's nothing we can do with that. We are to be patient until that time. And here's John overseeing all these different churches as an apostle with the heart of a pastor wanting desperately for their joy to be full knowing that they will not have the joy first if they don't have the gospel which they had because he taught it to them. The Spirit taught it to him through John. And we need to understand, too, when the apostles lived and acted, they weren't, they weren't infallible. They did stupid stuff. They had stupid philosophies. They had stupid and fleshly interpretations and implications of certain things. But when they were corrected by one another, and when they sat down and wrote under the unction of the Holy Spirit, it is infallible. So in Antioch, in Galatians chapter 2, when Peter was acting like a fool... And, not wanting, and wanting to save face with his Jewish friends, Paul stands up and says, You're a fool! This is, a, this is false gospel living. What are you doing? And that was embarrassing for Peter. Peter wasn't unconverted. Peter was foolish. Peter was fleshly. Jesse and I make that joke a lot of times. Maybe we should remind these people we got flesh still. <laughs> no, because both of us are fighters and we'd be busting on some people. We don't want to do that. Dave is the only sane mind in the group when it comes to busting heads. We don't want to get fleshly. They make mistakes, but when the Word of God is written, there is no mistake. There is no truth. That is, is, there is no error. It is all truth. There is no truth that has been delayed or deleted or lost in the context of the Scripture. It is sound. So therefore, we trust the, the Lord that His promises, according to His Word, are certain to bring the reconciliation that we need. John is seeking reconciliation with a man by the name of Diotrephes. But more importantly, he's seeking reconciliation for the body, for the family of faith in this area to acknowledge the authority of the writing of the apostles, the lordship of Jesus Christ and his redemption of his people and the command that Christ had given the apostles to teach them. And then the implication of loving together as the sole means of life in your physical body unto the glory of Christ. Because if you have all the truth but you aren't loving, you have nothing. And a matter of fact, you are nothing. 
You are nothing. You are worthless. And this isn't my, I hate that. The, the, the Papa Daddy loving guy in me hates to say those words. There is nothing worthless in my mind. Nothing. Everything has value. Don't believe me? Ask my wife. I ha- everything to me has value. And I keep it. And I store it. <laughs> and I put it away. And I stack it up. I've had a sack of bolts that my grandfather gave me when I was in high school. But one day I'm going to need those. I mean, you know. So for me to say what the scripture says is that without love we are worthless, it hurts me. So sometimes I de-emphasize those. We're worthless in our purpose and you need to get it better. Come on, Tiffins. Just say what the Bible says. If we are loving one another in the truth of Christ, and we have the gospel of grace, free and sovereign, then we must, we are implicated by the command of God to live accordingly as a family of faith. And that's why we're here today, beloved. It's a family room. It's a gathering of saints who have been purchased by Christ. And it gives me great joy when we gather together, when we're able to. But the, the, the next step is yours to take. The next interaction is yours to understand. We have to have intimacy beyond this assembly. And let me tell you what intimacy in the body of Christ is. It's not about just eating together and cooking out together and doing fun things together. I can do that with anybody in the world that I have an affinity with. Are we willing to expose ourselves in some real way to the body? Because the scripture says, I don't have to find it, I'll just quote it for you. The scripture teaches that Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God has put together the body as he sees fit and that every part of the body is for the encouragement and the building up of the other. That all the spiritual gifts that each of us hold are not confined to the stupid 1970s little dumb pamphlet that somebody wrote that came a book series that became a lecture series about find your spiritual gift it's one of these 11 that's baloney your spiritual gift is that you have the spirit of god within you your spiritual gift is that you have a a a passion for certain things that can help serve some other people your spiritual gift is that you are good at you well that sounds like some help uh, some prosperity garbage no it's not it's what the bible teaches You have giftedness and you've been created in the image of God and you've been created to do good works that God has prepared beforehand. What are those good works? That we might serve the body unto unto edification, unto maturity in the headship of Christ. That we may grow in the likeness of Christ. In what way? Every way. Are we growing in holiness? Are we becoming more set apart? No. We're certainly learning to set our lives apart for the sake of each other. Thus, for the sake of Christ. And this is not new. Beloved, I've been preaching this since John 17. Since John 14. Romans, Hebrews, it's all there. Let brotherly love continue. This isn't an addendum that's not important. These writings are as authoritative and as equally viable as a command as the gospel itself and the doctrines of Christ itself because they are the doctrines of Christ. Oh, now you're a Lord shipper. Man, hush that lie. That's the devil's tongue to call me that. And it's the devil's tongue to call me an antinomian too. You just keep speaking, Satan. And that's how I'm coming to that from now on. And that's how you should come on. Just say... That's just the devil speaking. Moving right along. Don't waste your time and throw your pearls before swine. Swine accuse you. Let them have it. Give it to them. Let them all sit in the same hog pen and accuse one another. Because that's where we're going. That's what Diotrephes was doing. You see, what's the context here? Diotrephes. This is what's happening. The good, the bad, and the godly here. (laughs) I don't know how to name sermons. This isn't going to make sense. But John wrote a letter to Diotrephes, and as as far as we can tell, Diotrephes tore that thing up, and nobody else saw it. Because nobody else in the church had heard that John had sent a letter. It's like Diotrephes saw the messenger. He happened to be the guy 
in town that day and somebody said, hey, I got a letter from the Apostle John. Oh, let me see it. Wanting to be big in his own shoes, looks at it and goes, this is about me. Or this is to me. He burned that thing. Nothing was happening. And then all of a sudden, what, what's going on? Let's look. Let's look at verse 9. I have written something to the church. I've written a letter to the church about Diotrephes, who likes to put himself before others, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, which is talking wicked nonsense against us. So you see my sentiment? Tippins, you're just being a little sinful. I am mimicking John. And I always preach ahead of the text because I think psychologically it's just the way I've learned to read it and to teach it and then to prove what I've said rather than read it then prove itself. And then I think psychologically it lets the hearers go, I don't care if I agree with that. Oh, I have to agree with that because the Bible says so. He's speaking wicked nonsense against us, and he's not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. In other words, he's going a further way. He refuses to welcome other brothers and also stops those who want to welcome them and is putting them out of the church. And then John says in verse 11 that that's evil. And what is evil but worthless? What is evil but loveless? What is evil but wicked? You see? So I don't care as much as a pastor. I care as much as a pastor. I shouldn't say I don't care. I care as much as a pastor, not only about your gospel testimony, I care also equally about your gospel love for one another. Because if we don't need that, I am free from you. You don't need me at all. There are plenty of good preachers you can listen to at home and never assemble. Go ahead. You see, we don't need each other. Don't need each other. There's no reason people should move here, be a part of our family. We don't need anybody. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I'm, I'm, and I'm talking to us. Not about us. I'm talking to me. I'm learning as we all learn together. We are growing and being reminded by this text of what our call is. But we already know that because we've already gone through First John. We've already seen Second John about that exclusion that those who are loving but come in with a false Christ, we are not obligated to them. We are obligated to reconcile that profession. We're talking about people who come in from the out. People who sneak in, who come sideways. People who are evangelists for a false Christ. We have no obligation to them. But this letter is that we have an obligation to those evangelists who preach the true Christ. And I believe that when John received his revelation, and I believe when he wrote by the Spirit in chapter 2, He says of the church of Ephesus, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be false. And I know you are endurantly patient and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, Jesus says in Revelation 2.4. You have not, um, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, change your thinking and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will turn out your light unless you change the way you're thinking. Now, what is a church without light? Nothing. Nothing. What did Paul tell the Thessalonians when he praised God for them? When he said, I praise the Lord for you. I praise the Lord for you. For the testimony that you have has come all the way 
to all the regions of this area. From Macedonia to Achaia. And not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that when we arrive to these places, we don't have to say a thing. For they themselves report us, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols in order to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul was overjoyed at the affection that the Thessalonians had, not only for the truth of the gospel, and then therefore their disdain for the idols of the world and the false gospels, but also, and equally important, he overjoyed that they had love for one another that far surpassed the totality of the understanding of love for the cultures around them. But Diotrephes likes to put himself first. See, John has commended Gaius. Why did he write Gaius? Because Diotrephes was intercepting. I guarantee you, once that letter came, I bet Diotrephes was intercepting everything that came to John. I mean, wouldn't you? You get a bad letter in the mail or, you know, somebody's trying to talk. And I don't want that. The boss man's coming in, putting memos in people's boxes. You're going, you know. I mean, you want to intercept that stuff. You don't want people to know about you. And not only that, Diotrephes has gotten control of the church. How did he do that? Bad-mouthing the apostles. There's no greater way to get an audience than to say something negative. That's why I've never heard of a bankrupt tabloid. I mean, you just don't hear about it. Now, you can prove me wrong. I'm sure there have been. Many have tried. Most have succeeded. Nobody goes bankrupt when they're spreading bad news. I mean, if, if, if the apostles wrote bad news every time the occasion was there, the Bible would be in volumes. The New Testament would be like 666 books. We'd have, we'd have, we'd have all sorts of things. We'd have the letters of complaints, the letters of gripes, the letters of sufferings, you know, pastoral burdens. <laughs> I mean, it would, be, it would be voluminous. But instead, we have the proclamation of the truth of the gospel interposed into reconciled issues, written because of reconciled difference, because of differences that needed reconciled, written because of behavior, mostly. People's behavior was unbecoming of the call of God in Christ. And that the testimony of the family together wasn't indicative of the love of Christ. We sang it this morning. We, we ought to be compelled to honor the Lord in our lives together by being reminded. You didn't even know you sang it, did you? By being reminded of the glories of the grace of God and the death of Jesus and the purity of his death and what it did for us. This is, the, this is the teaching of the apostles. Podiatrophes puts himself first. He didn't care about the church. He didn't care about what was going on in the life of the church. He had made a stance. He had made something and inserted himself into a position of authority by saying this is what we're going to do. This is what the word of God requires. And he got a bandwagon. He got roadies. He got folks to follow him in this reasoning. And the elders lost control of the church. Because somewhere along the line, the sheep decided that they were the arbiters of reconciliation and that they were the ones who were supposed to always bring to the attention of everyone else errors and sin. And that is the furthest from the truth. As we'll see when we get into Paul's teaching to Timothy. Your responsibility as a member of the congregation is to bring to the elders when things don't seem right or appear wrong. If you take it to somebody else, you're wicked. That is gossip. It is always wicked. And we put each other to the test too, don't we? We say something. It's easy to do. Diotrephes had said so much. 
He was talking wicked nonsense about them. I love that. You know what the real word is there? Murderous gossip. Gossip is murder. I hate that conviction that comes with that, don't you? I feel so bad. Good. Why do we feel so bad? Because that isn't how Christ taught us. Same reason when I'm, I'm, I'm 47 years old, but I still feel bad when I do things out of the place where my father taught me to do them. If I let my oil change go a little bit longer than it should. Because the book says 10,000 miles, but the sticker says three. You know? I feel bad. If we feel bad about our earthly fathers giving us instruction on things like oil changes, why do we not feel bad when our heavenly father gives us instruction for our good and for our joy and for the unity of the faith? We should. But we should not live in despair. We should not be broken. We should not be corrupted. We should rejoice. You know what? The Lord gave this opportunity for me to realize what he has died for. Jesus died for the sins of the elect, for the little petty sins, the frustrations, the little sinful thoughts, and the grave, wicked acts of gossip. Which is murder. And Diotrephes wasn't content with just talking trash about the apostles. What else did he do? He refuses to welcome the brothers. He made himself the sword of the church. Nope, these evangelists shall not come to our presence. Remember, guys, we don't welcome these people. We don't welcome these. Yeah, we don't welcome these people. I mean, what, you gonna do? what are me and Dave and Jesse going to do if everybody here? No, we're not welcome here. Stand at the door. <laughs> Call the cops. Not for y'all, for me. I mean, you know, we've got to get Tippins under control. He's about to lose it. And we're all joking. But, I mean, I, I envision that. I envision that being this near of a brawl if someone had stepped up and hammered authority. Because there's one thing elders don't have is rule and authority to destroy the body. They have responsibility to govern and oversee and shepherd. And when the body no longer listens, the church goes away. Because that's the whole point of the assembly of faith. It's not sheep getting what they want, finding pastors for themselves. We'll see in Timothy that that is always, always, always the devil's work. That ain't church planning. That's satanic church planning. That's the evangelical cult methods. That when the elders... Cease. The church is gone. That's why plurality of elders is necessary, right? Well, we'll just make elders of ourselves. That's not biblical. It's not how it works. Oh, you're, you're Catholic now. You're No, I'm not. Listen, folks, the authority of the Word of God has not ceased to be the authority of the church. Diotrephes was a devil in the midst of the body doing devilish things, but he was a brother. And John wanted it straightened out. How many months did it take for these letters to go back into? Probably a year. And John patiently endured this while the church ran in the ground to the point that it was so long that Diotrephes had control of the membership of the church. That not only were they not believing in John and the apostles, and the apostles' writing, they no longer held them as the standard and the authority of the governed the church. They no longer listened to the elder brothers who had lost control of the church. They no, and then they had every, the majority agreeing with them to the point that when missionaries came through to continue the work of apostolic church planting, they would send them on their way to their destruction with no food and with no money, no rest, no water. This isn't talking about a love offering for a man to be able to pay his bills. This is life or death. This is taking care of people who are doing the work of the ministry. He stops those and puts them out of the church. So who was left? The naysayers. That's all that was left. And then poor Gaius. 
John's like, well, I'll write Gaius. I know he's a faithful brother. He commended Gaius for his love. I've heard that you, Gaius, have been doing this. You have been going against the whole of the assembly to love these men who are doing the work of God. You see? So this is the context here. Where's the application? Beloved, let's check our hearts. Let's check our motives. Let's check the fact that we're looking for reconciliation and we're not strong-arming in our pet peeves. That we're seeking unity, not in our way, but in the authoritative way that the Scripture commands us first to know and then second to live. We ought to support these people, verse 8, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. That's where I ended up last week. Because if we support false teachers, we're fellow workers with their lies. If we support true teachers, we're fellow workers in the truth. So we are to be supportive of teachers. And there's so many things that are going through my head right now that I'm going to yield until my closing message of this letter. But there is some application on how we expressly denote and affirm and mark people in our day that we need to have wisdom on. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Now I want to remind you that this is not an evangelistic letter. John is not writing about salvation here. John is not writing about assurance of salvation. He's already done that, hasn't he? What's our assurance of salvation? The Spirit of God who teaches us the truth of Christ. Okay? I've been saying this very phrase for almost 18 years. Hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. So don't indict me. Don't indict me on what I'm not saying. Take it for face value what I am saying. I don't play with words. I don't mince words. Not on purpose. I may mash them, but I don't... (laughs) I don't play with them. And John is saying, in the context of the assembly, there are people who live and do evil things. Don't do like they do. Don't follow them. Does not Paul say the same thing? I said John, yeah. Does not Paul say the same thing to the church of Ephesus? Don't have nasty talk come out of your mouth. Don't use cursing. James says not to use cursing. Good gracious. (laughs) Why? Because it's unbecoming. It violates, you know, and I've got... I've got friends who think it's cool to use an explicative in the pulpit. I'm too far dirty south to ever try that one. Because I know what it would be. It would ruin the witness. But yet, some places around the world, no big deal. Paul did. Okay, then go ahead. Paul stayed in prison most of his life too. You want Paul's life? Get it. Go get it. I don't. I do in one sense, but not in a reality. Don't imitate evil, but imitate good. This is not a figure of speech. That's supposed to, this is not a mystical phrase that's supposed to teach us to sit and rest peacefully in the knowledge of Christ and the doctrines of grace. That's a given. That, John's not even writing about that kind of stuff. He's already said, I love you in the truth. We already know the truth. Now we've got to fix a problem in the church. These letters are written to fix a problem in the church. So when the pastor preacher preaches this to the church, he reminds the church continually of the sovereign grace of God that saves them. And then he teaches the text that shows that there were errors in the church. Then we make some sense of application that if we see this type of error, we should correct it in the same way. And that if we see this type of stuff coming up into our spirit, we should put it to death very clearly. We should not imitate that. But see, we live in a world that's not very disconnected anymore, do we? Is it? Whatever I'm trying to say. I mean, we can see things. Like right now, there are other pastor brother friends of mine who are teaching the text, who are streaming live on the Internet, and people are flipping back into and trying to get. And like, you know, there's a large subsect, a large group of folks who just like to just, they get up Sunday mornings and they listen and watch sermons all day long. That is amazing that we can do that. And praise God that we can have that connectivity with the world that otherwise would completely be isolated. Could you imagine back in the day when I used to write postcards and letters to France and to West Africa and to places like that, friends that lived there. And I would wait months to hear back. 
Because you couldn't afford the phone call. $7 a minute. I mean, you know. You couldn't afford it. But now you just text them. You just stream them. You just FaceTime. You just Zoom them. You, whatever. They can watch you. We can watch each other. So we're very... So this reality... Like I said, in 2004, I, I, I told a group of parents, a couple of hundred parents, I said one day when we talk about our youth and on, on MySpace and stuff like this, I said the Internet is going to be a place where we live rather than just a tool that we use. And I think 2020 showed us that. So I think sometimes the application of a text like this, while not in the context, does have to be understood that there is a relationship that we have with people through the social media sphere and through online sphere that we also are subject to in the context of the teaching of this letter. So don't imitate evil online. It doesn't shield you, beloved. It makes you look foolish. You. It makes us look foolish. That's the problem with the person speaking. You, 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 you. And I'm talking to you. Yeah. Talking to us. We are talking it makes us look foolish when we imitate evil. We've all done it. Just like, you know, you've been in the grocery store, right? And you've seen children that needed to die. <laughs> needed to be killed or put out to pasture. And I'm being funny. I might not, it should be so crude. But they need, a good, they need some good discipline. And you think to yourself, I'll bring them home to my house, I'll tell them. And the mother's just whipped, or the father's just whipped. I'll buy you this toy if you'll shut up. I'll hear some candy. You know, eat these grapes. And we don't know their circumstances. We don't know what's going on. It's not our business, but we've got an opinion on it. But seldom do we ever go up to that person and say, Would you shut that child up? Would you do what you're supposed to do? Here, take my belt. I mean, you know, in our minds we're thinking that, but we're just cool. Doot, doot. And we're doing our business and we're going on to the car. But imagine all of a sudden if that was happening to you and someone third in line came out there and snatched up your child and started slapping it and shoved it back down in the buggy. You know what? It's on. I hope somebody's recording it because I'm about to get a million hits. And I'm not talking about on Facebook or YouTube. <laughs> it's about to go bad. Grace Truth's going to be down an elder <laughs> for a while. You can visit me in the penitentiary. But yeah, we'll do that on social media. Well, it was public. It doesn't give us the right to stick our nose in it. As a matter of fact, anything public, the scripture says, if we put our nose in it without invitation, we're busybodies. Don't. There's some wisdom in it, beloved. There's some wisdom in it. And we're all guilty of it. Let's not imitate evil in the body of Christ. Let's not imitate evil in the grocery store. Let's not imitate evil in our workplace. Let's not imitate evil in the, on our social spheres. Let's not imitate. Let people know that we are gentle and that we are patient. We can interact without evil. You see what I'm saying? We can ask questions. We can be kind. We can, be, we can do things. And some of us do so well with that, but others know better to even turn on the computer. Some of us are able to handle certain things. And so we who are weak need to learn from those who are strong. We who are immature need to learn from those who are wise. And then we grow together. We grow together. We grow together by learning, Third John, that there are going to always be people among us. It may be me who become a Diotrephes. Because, beloved, I am in a flesh suit. I have a will and I have a sinful nature. And by the mercy of God, He has restored me to Himself through the death of Christ. And He has given me the understanding of His grace and the substitutionary work that Christ did on my behalf to be my righteousness and be my punishment, be the sacrificial lamb, and that the promises that He's given me are surely mine in Christ, and my assurance lies there, and my hope lies there, and everything that I look for lies there, but I have my buttons. And the Lord has grown me greatly in so many of those things that I don't know that the buttons are there anymore, but I don't want to push them to see. That's why I started out like I did with this reality that, you know, people think pastors are these perfect people. Folks are not perfect people. We're just being perfected in the love of God. It is the love of God that compels me to not show out. 
It is the love that God has for me in Christ that compels me not to talk back. So there is a discipline there that we grow together in. And when we see each other, we see others that are just acting all, we just have to be patient. We just need to... We want to snatch them out of the buggy and give them a good shake. But we have to be patient. We take them outside, we talk to them, we say, you do that again, you're probably going to get left at the supermarket. And somebody else can have you. (laughs) You know. See, Nora was good at that as a mother. Oh, my goodness, James just acting ugly. She'd be smiling. How you doing? Good to see you. I'll see you next week. And all the while, those two-inch nails were digging into the bicep underneath the other side of your thing. And you knew if you even said a peep, she'd take your juggler out. And then when we got to that toy, 1977 Toyota Corolla, she'd take that flip-flop off and she'd tear us up. Flip-flop, fly-flap. So you think those fly swatters at the end of the aisles are so you don't forget it. No, those are parental emergencies. 911, breaking, they a dollar. <laughs> and you knew when that was bought, you just went ahead and straightened up because you was going to get it. It was over. Yeah, there you go. Sister, she's raising her hand there. And I know her. I, yeah, your son has told me. And that's how you raise kids in the 70s and the 80s. It's not how we raise kids today. How we disciplined in the context of our ministry in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s is different today. Because relationships change, but the truth never does. How we work together unto our joy. There is no joy in you if you worry about coming to church because you're going to get in trouble. There's no joy in you if you worry about saying something that you're thinking about because you're going to get you know, defamed. Let's not imitate evil, but imitate good. Because the, the idea is that those who are doing good in the body of Christ are the ones who have been sent by God to be the work, to be the ministers who are from God. See, Jesus was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father to die to himself to lay his life down for the ransom of the church. So in the same way, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to your husbands as Christ submitted to the Father. And so on and so forth. So that we as a family of faith are to learn to do that. And the elders are in the... They're pushing the buggies. (laughs) And when all the kids are having fits, everybody else is saying, why aren't you doing something about it? Sometimes we just have to wait. We have to be... Patient. We're, it's not that we're not. We're just not doing it to your satisfaction. But we must do it to the Lord's satisfaction. What was the, what was the reconciliation here? I think, when, I think when, Paul, when John got to Gaius, I think Gaius went to Diotrephes, and I think Diotrephes saw the handwriting on the wall. Why? Because I don't see another letter unless Diotrephes tore them all up. I don't see anything else in any other place where it talks about the fact that He was kicked out of the church or anything of that nature. But John was handling it. The church was going to have to answer for it. And beloved, sometimes that's the things that we need to remember too, that all the New Testament letters are written to either deal with a suffering, deal with a problem of behavior, or deal with a doctrinal issue that should be put out of the church. And who do we think we are to think we're not going to go through the same thing? Because as Christ suffered, we who are in Christ are going to suffer as Christ suffered. We're going to be maligned. We're going to be, uh, you know, belittled. We're going to be all sorts of things. But it doesn't mean that we're not in Christ. Being the body of Christ, being the family of faith is not a, a place of perfection and a place of constant peace. That perfection and peace is in Christ alone. He is our perfection. He is our peace. And that's the only unity that we really have. So we strive for the other parts of unity through reconciliation. And we're all different. I think that's why so many American churches have so many affinity groups. So that they can divert. They can, they can dilute the, the, the congregation to the point where it, it overcomes some of these differences. Oh, I don't want to mess up that because I really like the skateboard ministry. I don't like that guy. Thank God he's not in the skateboard ministry. He's in the knitting ministry. You know, nothing wrong. We can minister to each other in our affinities. Great. But it's not a federation of the congregation. It's not the congregation's part to put those things together. We can do it. But we come 
to understand that we're not going to find a perfect family. We're going to find a family that is perfected in the love of God. Through Jesus Christ alone. And we are rehearsing the reality that one day we will be with him. And then one day we will also be like him. And none of us will ever bother the other. Could you imagine not being bothered by something? I can't. That bothers me. (laughs) And I don't want to because I'll stay up all night thinking about it. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. You see that? We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This is a very intimate writing and it exposes a very intimate relationship with the church that he wrote to and with Gaius and the people in his life. Beloved, the church is a very intimate relationship with each other. And we need to understand the impact of when that intimacy is corrupted or that intimacy is broken. It is disastrous. Personally, And then publicly, it is very disastrous. We need to recognize that. And we need to know that our intimacy is directly related to our understanding of the intimacy that we have with Christ. So that as the Bible teaches us that Christ gave himself for us, he sacrificed his life. He came into flesh. And I've heard people tell the stories throughout the years. It's like the king putting on homeless man's clothes and walking around and living on the street. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, if that helps a child understand in a similar way, like a simile, this is the creator of the universe taking on the body of a creation and subjecting himself to that which he created to be hated and reviled and killed By his own will that he might present himself as a sacrifice and replacement for his people who hate him. (laughs) Who hate him. Now think about that for a second. So that when we remember the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus and what Christ did in his passion... We should be remembering one another because just because I am a recipient doesn't mean that I am the point. We are the point. Well, no, it's God's glory. I know that, but we are that which God's glory is manifest. God has determined in His infinite wisdom that we would praise Him for His glorious grace and be made like Christ forever glorious for the fullness and the completeness of joy and satisfaction and peace together. He is glorified in our existence. So, beloved, He needs to be glorified in our lives. And we need to be at peace with that. We need to know that. And we need to understand that. And we need to know and pray and be intimate with each other by name. Let's pray. Father, as we are thinking about the gospel, as we're thinking about intimacy that we have with you through Christ Jesus, we thank you for this letter, for this practical teaching that you've given us, Lord. Not that we are dealing with these same things, but Father, we are all dealing with the same flesh. We're all dealing with certain ways in which our relationships with others has been strained. Father, we are dealing with false teachers who who like to parade themselves in our social spheres. Lord, help us to give time to one another. Help us to not put ourselves first. Help us to understand that the gospel shows us that Christ put himself last. That Christ gave himself up. And that we likewise, according to his instruction, together should do that for one another. And that in that doing, Lord, help us to realize that we will receive the same blessing.
joy, and ministry. For if we consider ourselves all the time, nobody will receive our ministry. And in turn, we will receive no one else's. So as we think of the body of Christ and all that it accomplished and the blood of Christ and all that it set free and help us to be reminded of one another, to be reminded of the cost of redemption and to be reminded of the purpose of the assembly that you have put together for your glory. Paul has taught us that already as he wrote to the Ephesians. That your glory is seen in the people you have saved. Through the Son whom you have sent. In whose name we pray. Amen.